On Kingdom Roots today, our guest is one of the keynote speakers at the upcoming Toe for Women event sponsored by Northern Seminary. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about this special event and how you can be a part of it. Toe for Women is a one-day event featuring Dr. Lisa Bowens, Vivian Mabuni, and Dr. Scott McKnight. It's an event that aims to bring goodness, or Tove, into our churches, ministries, and everyday lives. Based on Dr. Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger's book, A Church Called Tove, Tove for Women 2022 takes the conversation a step further by encouraging and empowering us to create cultures characterized by goodness. We are thrilled to offer a diverse slate of voices from across the country and a variety of backgrounds. If you're interested in joining us, this event is happening on Friday, October 21st in the Chicagoland area from 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Central Time, and it's happening both in person and via live stream. In person is at Elmhurst Christian Reform Church, and for more information and to register, go to events at cwlnorthern.com. And again, that website is cwlnorthern.com, and we'll have more information in our show notes. So check that out, and we hope to see you there. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have Lisa Bowens as our guest to talk about her book, African American Readings of Paul, Reception, Resistance, and Transformation. Lisa is an associate professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. As the first African-American woman to receive tenure in Princeton Theological Seminary's Bible department, she teaches a variety of courses, including Introduction to the New Testament Exegesis, Paul and Apocalyptic Thought, and African-American Pauline Hermeneutics. She is also going to be a keynote speaker at the upcoming event, Toe for Women, hosted at Northern Seminary. So Lisa, it's a delight to have you here. I'm excited to hear more about your book and also to hear a little bit of a preview of what you'll be sharing at the Toe for Women event. So welcome. We're excited to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Scott, for having me today. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, Lisa, you're a colleague of one of my uh, favorite New Testament scholars, Dale Allison who uh, is about my age, and I think Dale Allison may be the only person who's ever read my Ph.D. dissertation. (laughs) (laughs) When he wrote, when he was writing his Matthew commentary, he asked me for it, and I went, okay. So I sent him a big, big manuscript, and yeah, I've known him for many years. Dale is wonderful. But Lisa, he's wonderful. (laughs) Well, that's good. I'm sure he is. I'm reading a book right now called Voices Long Silenced. I don't know if you've seen this book. It's a brand new book from Westminster, John Knox. It's about women biblical interpreters through the centuries. And I was just talking to Laura about this. Okay, I know about some women in the history of the church, but I was stunned, I am stunned by this book, by the number of women in the history of the church who've been involved in interpretation, translation of the whole Bible, mm-hmm. Uh, discovery of manuscripts at St. 
at St. Catherine's and, you know, in Mount Sinai. Yes. And, uh, but that these are voices that were significant. They made an impact and then they disappeared. And they disappeared in part because men had the power to silence them and also because publishers didn't continue to publish them. But I'm so grateful for someone like Joy Schrader and Mary Ann Taylor for writing a book like this. And as I've been reading it, I've, I'm always saying to myself, Lisa Bowens talks about this in her book. So I just want to, one of the things I'm interested in is I read your book. I think it was a Jesus Creed. I mean, I think it was my blog's book of the year. I think that one. Yeah. when I read your book, Lisa, I thought, how in the world did you find all these stories? Where are they? And so I'm kind of interested in how you dug these stories out. If you could. Yeah, that's a great question. So. I guess I should start with my dissertation project because that's where the idea for this book came about. So I wrote my dissertation on 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's Ascent to the Third Heaven. And one of the things I wanted to do with that project is not only put it that as a camp in dialogue with Jewish apocalyptic text, but also I wanted to include a chapter on how have African-Americans interpreted that text. And so mm -hmm. my doctor father, Ross Wagner, um, in his wisdom, <laughs> in his great he was a student of mine. <laughs> Ross was a student oh, of mine. Wonderful. Yes, he's yes, such a great yes. guy. And so in his oh, he wisdom, is. he said, well, Lisa, I actually think this is probably a separate project from this, what you're currently doing your dissertation on. And so I have those conversations with him about, you know, making this a separate project. And then I was also attending different conferences at the time. But at these conferences, they were putting forth the story of Howard Thurman's grandmother, Nancy Ambrose, and that powerful story with which I begin the book. But many people were putting forth that story as the way that African-Americans were interpreting Paul. And so those hmm. two... I would say those two events kind of converged for me. I started wondering, was that actually the case? That Nancy Ambrose's story was the way, like the one way African-Americans interpreted Paul. And then those conversations I was having with Ross about letting this be a separate project. And so I kind of expanded it. Instead of just looking at 2 Corinthians 12, I thought, well, why don't I just look at how African-Americans interpreted Paul more broadly? And so that's how the idea for this project came about. And I have to say, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I, you know, I naively thought, okay, I'm going to be able to cover everyone from the 1700s all the way to the 21st century. <laughs> and as I began doing my research, I realized, oh my, there's so many interpreters. There are so many texts, numerous texts. And there's no way I'm going to be able to talk about everyone and every text, which that's a good problem to have, though, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so, right. That's yeah, right. so I ended up having to narrow down my interpreters, and I stop in the mid-20th century and with the civil rights movement, but I do start with the 1700s and work my way chronologically through different centuries to the mid-20th century. And... 
it just so happened, like once I started embarking on this journey, researching these interpreters, I would read about one interpreter and then reading about one interpreter led me to another interpreter. And mm -hmm. so it just kept going from there. And I, yeah, it was an amazing journey. I learned so much myself mm -hmm. in doing the research, learned about the many and various ways African-Americans have interpreted Paul in their letters, in their essays, in their petitions, and how they used Paul to argue for their freedom, to argue for justice and equality. And it's, it was really, as I said, an amazing journey for me because when you read the book, you see there's no one way African-Americans interpret mm -hmm. Paul. The story of Nancy mm -hmm. Ambrose, I think, is a very important and powerful story because it does provide yeah. a glimpse into the complicated relationship that many African-Americans have had with Paul. But I think what I also do in the book is show that there are a variety of ways that African-Americans interpret Paul throughout history. Yeah, you certainly do this. Now, I'm begging you to tell us a story or two of one of these uh, stories where one of these uh, interpreters, these women, and how they flipped the script of Paul to... And the narrative that was being used about Paul, they just took it and just went, well, you can start doing this. I'm a big fan of Brian Blount. <laughs> yeah. And and his interpretation of the book of Revelation, I've read his books, you know, When the Whisper Put on Flesh. Yeah. And, and I've learned so much from him. But yours had all these crisp, clean interpretations of Paul that were really doing everything at once. So how about a story or two of one of these interpreters? Sure. So one of the things I try to do in the book is allow the interpreter's voices to come out. Yeah. So a lot of what you will find in the book is you'll find a lot of citations of primary text. Because I think you get a feel for the interpreter's voice as well as how they are utilizing Paul. And so I can lift up Zilpha Elaw, who I absolutely yeah. love. <laughs> Yeah. She, she shows up in this other book I'm reading. She shows up. I thought, well, Lisa does a better job than this one. So <laughs> you're so kind, Scott. Thank you. But she's a fascinating woman. She is a 19th century black female preacher. And so she experiences a conversion. And she gives detailed accounts in her autobiography of these really supernatural encounters that she has with God. She talks about her conversion experiences, and then she talks about the call she receives to preach the gospel. And I guess today we would call them mystical experiences, depending on, you know, the circles that you're running in. But it's so amazing to hear her voice when she's detailing these supernatural events. And these supernatural encounters that she has with God empower her to preach the gospel as well as oppose the racism that is happening in her mm. context. And she is a powerhouse. I mean, she is a fireball. She preaches the gospel. And of course, she faces opposition, first because she's a woman, and then second, because she's a Black woman. But even in the midst of that opposition, she goes forth. She does not back down. And her story is amazing for so many reasons. And I would just lift up one aspect of her story. So she was actually born free, 
But at one point in her life, she says God calls her to go preach in the slave state. Mm-hmm. And that is amazing in itself because as a free, even though she was born free, she could be captured while she's in the mm-hmm. South. But believing God has called her to that, she goes to the Southern states anyway. And she talks about her preaching while she's there. And she also talks about how she kind of becomes like a, maybe a, I guess a rock star in our, in our day, people start following her around because she's considered like such a prodigy. Like this black woman is here mm-hmm. preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And she talks about her experiences there. And one of the things she shares about that experience is she does have some fear. She talks about that fear about going because she knows what could possibly happen to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she also talks about how God gives her the strength mm. to go and do it anyway. And, mm. you know, just reading her story is phenomenal in that she is doing this work, proclaiming the gospel, preaching to the enslaved, but also to slaveholders. And it's just really mm-hmm. miraculous, her ministry during this time period. So she's one of the one of the women I talk about in the book whose life is such such an inspiration. <laughs> she's so, so <laughs> inspirational. And she's such a strong woman because she goes through a lot personally as well in her personal life, losing a number of family members to illness. But you see through her journey that her faith in God is so strong. And her relationship with the Holy Spirit is so deep and intimate. And yeah, you get a feel for this is a woman who loves the Lord and just dedicates her life to God. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's go ahead, Laura. You were going to say, well, I just I'm thinking as you're talking about this, that, you know, always our social location informs our interpretation of Scripture. And I think the you know, predominantly we've had um, books written by people in one particular social location. Um, And so I get really excited about this opportunity to broaden that out. So we're hearing from all of these different voices. And like Scott is saying, these are hiding in plain sight. People have been doing this work for a long time. It's just not always been available or apparent. How do you see this changing the conversation in Pauline's studies? So when scholars gather to talk about, is there this sort of excitement over hearing from different voices and how they're, you know, maybe how the conversation is being changed from this? Yeah, I think, you know, in my conversations with people about this book, there seems to be a warm reception to it so far. And even in the classes that I teach here at Princeton, students are hungry for these voices. And many of them ask the question, why have we not heard of these people before? Right. And so I think there is a thirst, a hunger for learning about these interpreters and seeing that they have something important to say in terms of how to interpret Paul, how to interpret scripture, and that we can learn from them a lot. So, Hmm. yeah, Yeah. so far it's been, I've I've experienced a warm reception to interpreters. And I think one reason for that is because when you read their stories, 
when you read their sermons and their essays, they are doing sophisticated biblical exegesis. <laughs> they are yeah, looking yeah. and they're taking seriously the historical context in which Paul writes, and they're relating that to their own context. And they're doing it, as I said, in such sophisticated, eloquent ways. And yeah. so I think one reason why the book has been received well is because you see the depth and the breadth of these interpreters and how they are taking yeah. seriously scripture as God's word, looking at it historically, but also tying it to their own context and saying the word of God has something to say for the very issues we're facing. The word of God yeah. spoke to yeah, Paul then, the word of God is speaking to us now. And so, yeah, we have so much to learn from these interpreters. I'm hoping that their voices will be added to courses on Paul, right? Courses on the New yeah. Testament, because they do give us, I think, some important insight into the power of scripture. You know, Lisa, one of the things that I saw in your book and is Nancy Ambrose's famous statement that after she read the statement about submit and stuff like this, I mean, an African-American woman experiences this differently than a white guy who's in a pretty comfortable world in the South. But she's basically said she would never read Paul yes. again. Mm -hmm. But when I read your book, I'm thinking, these women who did read Paul yeah. saw a Paul that many of us need to see today. Mm. That yeah. they're, you know, I've spent my whole life, I'm mostly a gospel professor, scholar, but the last 10 years I've worked in more Paul mm -hmm. and Revelation. And I'm going back to the gospels now. But I feel like we have not seen some of these stories, some of these interpretations. And so when they turn Paul upside down from the standard story that I have heard, you know, I've heard it. I hear my students at times over the years say, I don't like Paul. He's against women. I remember Chris's, my wife's grandmother saying this to me. I thought, well, I think he, he says some pretty radical things like Galatians 3.28. I thought this was one of the more exciting things. Do you call them dissidents? Do you call them resistance? Resist. How did they use Paul to resist interpretations of Paul that were present at that time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's a great question. And so they do it in different ways. These interpreters do it in different ways. I'll lift up Zilpha again as an example. So, you know, as I said earlier, she's facing opposition because she's preaching and people are using Paul to try to silence her, right? But she, in taking seriously the historical context of Paul's time, lifts up all these women who are in ministry with Paul and right. basically argues, she lifts up Phoebe. There's no way Phoebe as a deaconess is doing the mission of the church in silence. <laughs> There's no way that's <laughs> happening, right? And she's talking about all yeah. these other women who are in ministry with Paul and that they are not doing this ministry in silence. And so she makes that analogy to her own ministry as these women are not, we're not silent. So I'm not going to be silent. The other thing that she does, which is really interesting, is that she makes the move to talk about, if you look at the historical context in which these women are in ministry with Paul, 
that particular passage in which Paul is saying women be silent, she says that's for a specific congregation, yeah. right? So I think yeah. that's one way that these women, Zilpha, is resisting, right? This, this kind of interpretation of Paul to silence them. I think the other thing that's so interesting about many of these women and these other interpreters as well is they have a kinship with Paul. And one of the ways they have this kinship with him is, again, these supernatural encounters. That, that part of Paul's experience really resonates with them because they are having, as the way they frame it, similar encounters to what Paul has. And so when you're reading how they talk about their supernatural encounters with God, they're often framing those encounters as Paul did. I don't know whether I was in the body or out of the body when this happened, right? <laughs> so they're having these real powerful ex ex experiences with God, and they're describing them with Pauline language. So that's another way I think these women see some kinship with Paul, right? And in that, they see themselves as continuing his mission in a way, right? That they see themselves in an apostolic role. The ministry that began with Paul is kind of now continuing with me as I'm proclaiming the gospel. So it's really fascinating. Well, D, I was reading not too long ago, a book by Robert Chow Romero. And he has a book called Brown Church. Mm. And besides the fact that it was embarrassingly revealing, about American history and what Americans did mm -hmm. to Mexican Americans, you know, in the 19th century, et cetera, 18th century. Mm -hmm. What amazed me was he demonstrated that in the 15th and 16th century, Latin American theologians and pastors and priests, whatever, were already doing liberation theology. Yes. Now yes. I grew up, now you just bring up Phoebe. Okay. We can bring up the silence passage in 1 Timothy 2. I grew up being told in my churches that this that women were to be silent. They weren't to be preaching. You know, we let missionaries come up on the platform and tell their stories. It was called witnessing rather than preaching and giving a testimony. But there was, a, there was something about the idea that when people began to question this interpretation, that this was the age of feminism. And what you discover is that this is these were not new interpretations. Right. I saw that in your book. I'm seeing this in the new book by Schrader and Taylor. And there's so many things that you go, my goodness, Zilpha, is that her name, yeah. Zilpha? She saw things, and she brought this stuff out with force. So there's a long history of, and this is just not the 1960s with the hippies turning things upside down in American culture. <laughs> this is something that's been going on by people who've been reading the text of Paul very carefully. Well, how can people use your book, say, in the church or even in preaching? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, yep, so your comments evoke for me this sense of reclaiming. Yeah. Let's reclaim our legacy. Let's reclaim these voices. Because as you say, these types of interpretations have been going on for a long time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully in this work and in the work that you lifted up, that's on my list to read, by the way. <laughs> 
that we can begin as Christians to reclaim this part of our story. We, I mean, we know the negative part really well, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Let's begin to reclaim the voices that were opposing racism, opposing inequality. Mm-hmm. And I, so I'm hoping this work will assist in that effort to reclaim these voices and to embrace our history, the history of scripture as um, a force for justice and equality, a force for unity, and see God as a God of liberation, right? And this Mm -hmm. liberative work Mm -hmm. has been going on for centuries. Yeah. 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 That's so good. I'm going to well, Le- oh, go ahead, Laura. I, go ahead. Well, Lisa, I would love to hear from you just a little bit about this Tove for Women event that's coming up and your interest in being a part of it and what you're planning to share with the folks who are going to be there. Yeah, just what your thought is about being a part as one of our keynote speakers. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be a part of it. I'm just <laughs> so thankful and grateful that you all invited me to come. I'm looking forward to it because I have a special place in my heart for women in ministry. As someone who is in ministry myself and knowing the many obstacles that women face when they do answer that call and often are not encouraged and are not, you know, given the resources and the tools to go forth. So I'm hoping to encourage the women there to go forth in what God has called them to do. And so I will be talking about sisterhood across the centuries. That's the title of my talk. And in doing that, I will be lifting up some of these women and asking the question, how can what they have said then speak to us now? And so Mm. I'm hoping that women will be encouraged by seeing their sisters in the past speak to them now as they face their own um, ministry context. Oh, that's so good. And just thinking about the opportunity to celebrate together God's faithfulness. That's what I think of is this idea. This is not new. God has been raising up people in every generation to speak to these issues. And that's motivating. And that gives courage. Like, we can do this. We are the voices for this generation. But standing in a long line of people that God has raised up for that purpose is really fun yes, to think about. Yes, amen. Well, Lisa, Laura is planting a church, right? The Chicagoland Wonderful. area. So she's starting a church. And I tell my students this all the time. I say, and I this is something my wife calls my attention to when I don't do it. So I tell my students at the seminary, when you preach a sermon, Tell as many stories about women as you tell about men. And I'm grateful for books like yours because you tell us stories that we can tell in our sermons. Oh, thank you, Steve. I think think of my granddaughter who attends church with us is that when she sees Amanda up there preaching and doing at the table, and when she sees someone preaching or telling stories about women, that she thinks, I can do this too. Mm -hmm. But for years, I noticed uh, after a long time, way too long, that the only stories that many pastors and preachers tell are stories about other men. Uh, (laughs) And there's, you know, at least 50% of the church, you know, is women. (laughs) Let's tell some stories about women. So I think your book will become like a data bank. I've used a couple already when I've been speaking. So 
Um, oh, thank you. So I'm thankful for that. And, uh, and I just wonder if you have any final words you would like to tell our audience. I know you don't know them, but we, we don't know them all either. You know, they're out here on the internet. They don't identify themselves. So final words that you could offer our people to encourage them to reclaim some of the stories of resistance by in the Apostle Paul. So anything you have to say? Yeah, well, I think I would just close on this note, kind of picking up on what Laura was saying, this idea of this long legacy that we have, this legacy of faith. And my hope is that as people read this book, they see that we have such a rich, strong, vibrant legacy. And this sense mm. that, and I tell my students this, I feel like these interpreters pass the baton onto us, right? We are surrounded with a great cloud of witnesses. They fought in their generation. They resisted. They protested in their generation. And now it's our turn in a sense. And they've kind of passed the baton onto us. And their story can serve as inspiration for us as we continue that struggle. That's good. It's That's so a good, good word. Very good word. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you, Lisa. This has been such a delight, and we are looking forward to hearing more from you at the Tove for Women event, so I'm excited Me about too. that. <laughs> and yeah, we'll have more in our show notes about information for that event if our listeners want to join us for that. But in the meantime, we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Mm -hmm.